You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. My guests today, Bobby Turner and Chris Paul. A couple things before I turn the discussion over to Bobby, and then uh, Chris is going to jump in and join us in a little bit. Over the past couple of weeks, everybody thought that we were going to see another CARES Act or Stimulus II. As some of you who joined us two weeks ago know, the three industry association heads that I had on the Walker webcast all predicted that we would have a another stimulus bill of somewhere between $1.5 trillion and $1.75 trillion done by August 15th. It's very clear that we won't have another stimulus bill done by August 15th today. And a lot of people are now kind of scratching their heads, sort of saying, okay, the supplemental unemployment benefits have run out, the eviction moratorium has run out, and how long can the 20-plus million Americans who are still unemployed get by without another stimulus bill being put out there and approved by Congress. I would say that things were looking actually quite good until last Thursday. Um, I was getting updates on a pretty continuous basis that were looking like that the additional stimulus was going to be $400 per week and potentially higher, that there was going to be the one-time check of another $1,200, and that there was actually also going to be a rental assistance component to the bill. So last Thursday morning, things looked quite good. And then, as everybody knows, pencils sort of went down last Friday. And subsequently, there's been very little either work or negotiations taking place on whatever you want to call it, CARES 2, HEROES Act, what have you. Interestingly, the NMHC rent tracker that followed the rent payments for the first five days of the month actually is holding up very strong, less than 200 basis points below where it was um, last month in the high 70%. And I would put a big asterisk on it because given the way that rents are being collected today, the first five days of the month really tells you nothing. But at the same time, it is a data point uh, and it is showing that people still have money to pay their rents. But what we have seen since the onset of the pandemic is that rent collections aren't on a typical cycle of the first 15 days of the month, that most people are getting to sort of somewhere in the 75 to 80% range in the first 15 days of the month and then collecting that additional 10 to 15% towards the end of the month, getting many uh, multifamily owners up into the 95% of rent collections since the pandemic began. Uh, I think that getting something passed in the next two to three weeks will be extremely important. I'd be hard pressed to think we don't get a bill by the beginning of September. And I think that everyone is very understanding that the executive orders that President Trump signed last weekend only goes so far as it relates to sustaining this economy. And that while the supplemental unemployment benefits are very much needed, the eviction extension of the eviction moratorium, which the president asked HUD and FHFA to study, it's not an executive order. So the extension of the eviction moratorium is right now being looked at by regulatory bodies, but the president did not sign any type of legislation or executive order to mandate that the extension of the eviction moratorium continues to go forward. And I would just reiterate that Walker and Dunlop and other industry members have been very straightforward in saying that 
the eviction moratorium should not continue forward, particularly if the federal government steps in with some type of increased unemployment benefits, as well as some type of rental assistance program. I would put forth that I mentioned in our earnings call last week that our investment sales pipeline has actually gotten very busy again. And I put out to the market that we only did $450 million worth of multifamily investment sales in Q2, and that we currently have about a billion three to a billion four of deals that are going to close in Q3. I think it is very interesting that the pricing we are seeing on many of the deals that we were marketing pre-COVID on deals that we are now have under contract are at or just slightly below pre-COVID pricing. And I think many people that we're talking to are surprised that deals are getting done at a 2 or 4% discount off of pre-COVID pricing. And I think the big driver there is obviously the cost of debt and the cost of capital. We did a 10-year fixed rate loan last week, 65% LTV at a 213 coupon rate which is uh, for a 10-year fixed-rate loan, full-term I.O., is unbelievably cheap capital. And so buyers of properties right now who are getting conviction to move forward at where cap rates were essentially pre-crisis are doing it because they picked up anywhere between 75 and 125 basis points off of pre-COVID pricing on their cost of debt. Final thing before I turn to my guest, Bobby, and we dive into Turner Impact, I had thought at the beginning of the crisis that banks were going to get hit, generally speaking, in Q3, first in consumer credit defaults that would then lead to CNI defaults that would then lead into commercial real estate defaults, and that we would start to see banks pulling back from a liquidity standpoint. I found it to be extremely interesting, and many of you probably saw the article last week in the Wall Street Journal talking about the fact that outstanding credit card balances in America have not gone up, but actually gone down by $100 billion since the onset of the COVID crisis. American consumers are taking the stimulus money that was given to them by the federal government, and they are paying down their credit card debt. They are not increasing it. The question I would say is, with no new stimulus bill, how long can they continue to do that before they get back to tapping into their credit cards? But I thought by now you would see consumer credit starting to really pinch the banks. And the article in the Wall Street Journal last week would tell you it's actually the opposite, that consumer credit outlook is actually far better today uh, than it has been in quite some time. So with all that as my preamble on the general markets, let me turn to Bobby. Bobby, it is a real pleasure to have you here today. And I want to thank you personally for bringing Chris on as well. You went to Wharton, uh, where you currently sit on the board, and I would commend you and the other board members for bringing in uh, Erica James as your new dean of the Wharton Business School. When you graduated from Wharton, you went to work for Drexel Burnham Lambert, and then you went to become a partner at Canyon Partners, one of the world's largest alternative investment management companies, where you, where you oversaw all of the firm's real estate investments. Yet in spite of all the success, you've repeatedly heard, I've repeatedly heard you say that for the vast majority of your career, you've struggled at being a capitalist. But you've also said to me that you struggled at being a philanthropist. Help me understand what's going on inside of your brain, Bobby, as it relates to this struggle between the capitalist world and the philanthropic world. It's uh, funny, Willie, is that's exactly the question my therapist started with about 20 years ago. You see, in, early in my career, I was your typically singularly focused Wall Street capitalist. 
uh, as well as your optimistically naive uh, philanthropist, and I struggled with both. As a capitalist, as you mentioned in the 80s, I worked for Drexel Burnham Lambert, where I was the liaison between the derivatives group and the high yield group structuring all sorts of currency and commodity index bonds. And after Drexel failed, I eventually went on to become a partner at one of the world's largest alternative investment managers, where over time, I realized that, that making money as the primary, in fact, the, the sole metric of my accomplishments was just not enough for me. So in a desire to gain some balance, maybe to have a positive impact on other people's lives, I started increasing my focus on philanthropy, where I also struggled. As a philanthropist, I supported a myriad of organizations, nonprofits focused on social justice and equality, and I quickly came to the conclusion that the vast majority of organizations that I was funding were really only putting Band-Aids on issues. They were reactive, not proactive. Uh, they weren't accountable either financially or socially. And in many instances, I found myself just funding legacies and dependencies. So nearly 20 years ago, I came to the conclusion that if you wanted to treat a problem in society, then the government and philanthropy were just fine. But if you wanted to cure, really cure, you had to harness market forces to create sustainable, durable, and yes, profitable solutions. And that's when I evolved into what I now call as a social impact investor. So as you evolved into that, I mean, what is social impact investing and why is it so important? In other words, it sounds like it's a hybrid between the, the capitalist world and the nonprofit world. Talk for a moment about you know, social impact investing and, and why it is so compelling for investors to put money there rather than just continue to give to nonprofits. As you say, their models might be less than forward-looking and less than solution-solving. Yeah, and it's, it's a really good question because impact investing is definitely something that's become fashionable to talk about. In fact, my kids tell me it's trending strongly on Twitter and Instagram, but not so much on TikTok. I also think it's something that's widely misunderstood. So for those who are unfamiliar with the term, I think it's easiest to start with what social impact is not. Uh, first of all, it's not an asset class. As an investor, one doesn't have a portfolio of stocks and bonds, private equity, real estate, and social impact investing. It is not philanthropy. It is not a new economic system that will replace capitalism. And if done correctly, it does not come at a sacrifice in yield. At its core, simply put, impact investing is a strategy, a risk filter, based on the premise that making change, both financial and social, is good for business. And businesses that seek to do both willy will outperform those that don't. Social impact recognizes that doing good and doing well needn't be exclusive, and in fact, the interdependencies between profits and purpose can actually drive better risk-adjusted returns because it's not based on speculation. But most importantly, to your point today, uh, social impact is business as a force for good. I think we can all agree that this country is in desperate need of a force for good to address some of our most pervasive social challenges in a sustainable, scalable way. And the reality is, is that our reliance on the government to provide a fundamental social safety net, a clear path to prosperity for millions of families that are living in survival mode, it's actually handicapped our outcomes relying upon the government. And we need to look at an alternative source of sustainability, and that is business as a force for good or social impact investing. So your first fund was back in 1998, and you partnered with Magic Johnson to get commercial real estate capital going to America's inner cities. First of all, you picked a great partner. But talk for a moment about, I mean, this is 22 years ago. You just outlined how needed this is today in 2020. You're talking about 1998. You're going into the American inner cities with Magic Johnson to put money into retail. Talk for a moment about raising the capital around that and really at that time introducing the concept of social impact investing. 
Yeah, it, it is true that my first initiative was 22 years ago, uh, back in 1998, when I launched a series of funds with Magic Johnson called the Canyon Johnson Urban Funds. Back then, I just saw a huge opportunity to invest in densely populated, ethnically diverse communities characterized by strong population growth, huge mismatches in supply and demand of things like community serving retail, affordable home ownership, rentership, and proximate health care and educational infrastructure. Also important was the scarcity of institutional capital because of the misperception of the risks associated with investing in urban communities, communities of color and immigrants. Uh, back then, candidly, really, I wasn't calling it social impact investing. I was just calling it smart investing. So when Magic and I first sat down to discuss a partnership, we uh, agreed on almost everything out of the box, except for how long it would take to raise the first fund. So I actually thought it would take six months based upon the misperception of the opportunity, based upon the compelling fundamentals, based upon our track record, and based upon his notoriety. It would clearly only take us six months. He looked at me and thought it would take two years. Uh, he felt that the misperception of the opportunity, possibly even the racism within institutional capital, that it would be a very, very Herculean task to raise money, and it would take years. And the fact is, had you bet on both of us, you would have been right, because it ended up taking us two years and six months to raise our first fund. So no, it was not easy. And let's start with the basic premise that most investors do not believe that profits and purpose can play nicely in the sandbox. One must segregate the two. That anytime you superimpose a social return upon a financial investment, you're going to sacrifice yield. Well, the fact is, as I now 22 years into it, I'm in a unique position to refute that. And for the last 20 years, we've actually proven that investments in social change, investing in hope, doesn't come at a sacrifice in yield. And in fact, if done correctly, it can actually drive better risk-adjusted returns than more traditional strategies because it's just not based on speculation. We're not trying to create demand. Rather, we're focused on opportunities where there's an existing demand that's going unmet. It's growing. It's large. Think education. Think housing, healthcare, think access to clean water or air, where the demand is less correlated to the broader indices and where opportunities are misperceived or difficult to underwrite and require unique skills. And most importantly, where the traditional investor has been either the government or philanthropy. So as you talk about yields and raising funds on the on the Canyon Johnson fund, you've now taken six years to build Turner Impact into a multi-billion dollar fund manager. It's the world's largest impact investment fund with over 250 employees, and 90% of which are diverse and 51% women. Talk for a moment about how you pull together such a diverse team at Turner Impact and why that diversity is so important as it relates to your analysis of opportunities, your management of assets, and the future growth of Turner Impact. So I think it's important to start off by recognizing that investing in social justice requires more than just the traditional skill sets of an investment manager. Investing in hope doesn't come at a sacrifice in yield, but let's be serious, it does come with a unique set of skills that are necessary to identify, quantify, and mitigate risk. Uh, when I partnered with Magic over 20 years ago, he told me two words would clearly define investments in underserved communities, and that would be arrogance and distrust. Arrogance from providers of capital who, because we were smart and had the capital, we knew how to solve the problems of social injustice, and distrust from the communities that can't really suffered the injustices who believe that capital was there just to make money. So 
Effectively, what I've learned over the last two ways is that the only way to bridge that gap between arrogance and distrust was by building an investment team that is from the community and intimately knowledgeable of the issues. I feel that empathy or sympathy is strong, but empathy is a much more powerful underwriting tool. So with this in mind, as you mentioned, in the last six years, we built Turner Impact Capital to 257 employees, of which we are 90% diverse, meaning non-white men. We are 50% women, meaning, I guess, non-men, and we are 100% fanatical about harnessing market forces. And our diversity doesn't stop at race or gender. It also expands to issue expertise, where in addition to recovering bankers, we also have former public school superintendents. We have primary care physicians and law enforcement agents. We have colleagues who grew up in public housing each possessing unique knowledge that's critical to quantifying, mitigating the risks of both financial and social investments in underserved communities. So Bobby, for a second, talk about the, if you will, the, what I would call the magic to your model in the sense that you're supplying workforce housing. There are many people who have a model as far as workforce housing, which is let's go buy a C, turn it into a B and keep the prices somewhat at market rate and I've created workforce housing. You've gone far further than that as it relates to the amenities you're providing and the, the team at Turner Impact and the skill sets that they have from law enforcement, from healthcare, from education. Talk for a moment about what you're providing at the, at the property level and why their skills are so important to your model being so successful. So it's a great question. So let, let's talk about uh, one of today's most daunting challenges because the reality is as a society, people are now talking about what our biggest challenges. And by the way, we have incredible challenges in this country. Over 40 million Americans are living on food stamps. 78% of American families are living paycheck to paycheck. Only one out of three students are proficient at grade level in public schools. And last year, we spent nearly 20% of our GDP on healthcare. And candidly, that's number one in the world, but yet our healthcare outcomes are in the bottom quartile with infant mortalities rising and life expectancy decreasing. So daunting challenges actually present generational investment opportunities, which is impact investing. And I think one of our biggest challenges is affordable workforce housing. And we have a very innovative model as to how we address it with a sustainable market-driven solution without driving rents on the very consumer who's seen no wage inflation. And if it's okay with you, Willie, I'm, I'm a visual human being, so I thought maybe I could share some pictures to help sort of embellish the, uh, what the opportunity looks like in the world. So when I'm talking about workforce housing, I'm not talking about low-income housing for those who earn below 60% of the average median income. Uh, I'm focused rather on those who earn between 60 and 100% of the AMI. These are essential service providers like policemen, teachers, firemen, healthcare workers, and municipal workers who candidly make too much money to qualify for subsidized housing, but not enough for luxury rental or home ownership. And I think that we can all agree that everybody suffers. Communities, household well-being, the environment, and worker productivity all suffer when housing, affordable housing, is not proximate to employment, education, and healthcare resources. So let's start with the fundamentals. There are 43 million renter households in America today that will grow by over 4 million over the next 10 years, primarily immigrants and communities of color. One out of two Nearly 22 million renter households are rent burdened, spending over a third of their income on rent, 
One out of four, nearly 12 million are severely rent burdened, spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent. And really that's coming at the expense of food security, health security, retirement security, and it's just not sustainable. So for all of us investors, the obvious solution is, is just to build new affordable workforce housing. But unfortunately, as many of us know, the solution's not that simple. Given the cost of land, labor, and hard costs, a for-profit developer cannot build new construction charge an affordable rent of, say, 30% of the average median income, and make a market rate return. In fact, in most major MSAs, those parameters yield less than a 2% return. So the problem's huge, the demand is growing, there's no new supply, and as you mentioned, what's most disheartening to me, and I know for Chris as well, is the fact that our existing supply of workforce housing is shrinking. Because every time B and C properties or, or subsidized properties are coming off compliance period, when they come to the market, they're being purchased by opportunistic investors who are either demolishing the properties to build new construction, or they're being purchased by opportunistic investors who are improving the properties and increase rents on the very tenant with no wage inflation. And while I haven't yet figured out how to build new product and generate market rate returns, I have been able to figure out how to buy the existing stock, preserve its affordability, and at the same time, generate a market return for investors. So let's just agree, if we want to generate market returns, but don't want to do it by increasing rents, then our only option is to do what? And that's reduce expenses. And if I've learned anything over 20, 30 years investing in urban communities, it's the biggest expense of workforce housing is turnover. Let's be serious. Nobody works two jobs a day, comes home to a shoddy apartment in a shoddy neighborhood, spends 60% of their income on rent, and screams, God, I love living here. The fact is, is that there's no pride in rentership, which leads to a transiency and an average lease duration of 24 months. So our business model is based on the very simple idea that if we can create a pride in rentership by enriching a community with relevant community services and by maintaining costs or rents at an affordable level, our tenants will stay longer and treat the property better, which in turn drives down maintenance costs, insurance costs, and economic loss, which enables us to drive profits without increasing rents. So in practice, every time we buy a property, we set aside a percentage of our rental units and we subsidize housing for relevant service providers who in return for reduced rents provide essential services that help build a sense of community, services that are essential to upward mobility and hope. The first thing we do is we focus on education where we recruit teachers, many from the schools that we built in our Turner Agassiz Charter School Funds, and in return for reduced rent, the teachers oversee educational programming tailored to the community makeup. Things like after-school tutoring for children and English as a second language for adults. The second thing we do is we recruit law enforcement agents and law enforcement agent families. And the currency that they'll pay us instead of rent is they'll park their squad car out front of our property, which is a real disincentive for a drug dealer to want to sell drugs within our property. They have to live in the building, they have to make their presence known, and they have to organize and oversee community watch programs. And finally, healthcare, where we recruit healthcare workers to oversee uh, health fairs, exercise classes, and in this photo you'll see kids excited about getting their annual flu shots. And while our tenants are paying a lot of rent, Willie, none of them could afford to pay for additional services leading to the simple facts that unless our tenants have to move, they don't. So while enriching a community is interesting in theory to me and to Chris, let me give you a few encouraging metrics. In the last five years, we've purchased 28 properties comprising just over 10,000 units. 
To date, we've enriched our communities with over 80,000 program participant hours of education, safety, and healthcare programming. And to date, we've driven tenant satisfaction rates from below 30%. Today, they sit at 95%. And in turn, this newfound satisfaction or pride in rentership has led to an increased profits in the way of a 30% increase in lease term. People are staying longer. A 30% reduction in incidences. People are treating their properties better. A 17% drop in economic loss, all leading to a nearly 8% growth in NOI, exclusive of taxes and insurance, and a forecasted 10% forecasted return net to investors, all without increasing rents. This is doing good by doing well, what we like to call impact investing. That's great, Bobby. So we saw the picture in there that Chris was in, and Chris has now joined us. Um, first of all, Chris, it's a real honor to have you joining us today, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time, particularly given that you have a game later on this evening against the Heat. But uh, thanks for being here and for joining us. I want to I want to broaden the conversation here a little bit, and and just what brought you to sort of partnering with Bobby and Turner Impact, and clearly, you know, there's that picture of you, and that's a great photo offering says a lot about your involvement in it. But what was it that said to you, hey, Turner Impact's where I want to spend some time and put some money? First and foremost, really, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I do have a game later. Wish us luck. <laughs> you know, we've been having a lot of guys out with bumps and bruises. But, um, you know, me and, me and Bobby met some years ago, and even though he can't shoot a jump shot, we did have a lot of things in common. You know, and I think one of the biggest things we had in common is that we wanted to see change, right? And just through the discussions that we had and uh, everything that Bobby just talked about, I remember the first time I heard it, I was sitting there. I was, you know, a young guy trying to learn and trying to basically find my footing and find my voice. And I've always said this, and I'm blessed and fortunate to have two parents, a mom and a father, who always taught me that basketball is an amazing tool. But to tell you the truth, if I'm remembered as being a great basketball player, then I have not done much, right? So with the impact fund, it's all about impacting others and these communities that I've, I've come from, that I've been around and trying to make real change, sustainable change. And yeah, I could talk for days. I know you could. So for let's a couple of quick things here. So the, the social change fund, which you and Carmelo Anthony and Dwayne Wade are, are three of the key investors and protagonists there. The, the mission is to partner with organizations that work to accelerate social change and sustainably build a fair, equitable society. Given that as the backdrop, Chris, what, what, what kind of organizations are you? I mean, the issue of racial justice is so broad. Right. You sit there and you say, okay, we got to focus on education. We got to focus on healthcare. We got to focus on criminal justice. There, there's so many different components to making it a more equitable world. Where are you all with the social change fund focused as it relates to moving the needle, if you will. You know, what we learned, and we're so lucky to be uh, seasoned basically in the league, right? So we're, we're a little older than guys. What we realized is that when you play a team sport, you always have coaches that always say, if you want to go fast, go along. If you want to go far, go together, right? And you have those coaches that they talk to you about, you know, if you run into a wall like this, right, you'll probably break down. But if you come together, you know, with a fist, you're a lot, lot stronger. Me, D-Wade, and Mello have been close for a number of years. We've had over 15, 20-year relationship, and we've done so much as individuals, right? So we were like, 
what if we come together right with this social change fund and that way there's not just one of us individual trying to do something if we come together we can be that much stronger and we can tackle these different issues whether it be social justice whether it be police reform whether it be education whether it be housing whether it be these food deserts right and that's what happens so much in our leagues and professional sports even just as humans you know we all have to put our egos aside because it's such a copycat world it's like I can do this. I can do this instead of people saying we can do this. So I think that's what I'm so excited about with our social change fund is to see us come together and realize that, you know, it's not about any one of us individually. And we want other people's input, you know, but like we said, we're product of these environments, these communities. So and we've done the work, right? We've done the work in the past. So we trust and know that all of us have a common goal. It's interesting on the social change fund and you coming together with other stars who all have their own, in many instances, foundations like you do in the CP3 Foundation. And you've been wildly philanthropic well before getting into the social change fund. And you focused on Katrina relief. You focused on funding it historically uh, black colleges and universities. Talk for a moment about how hard it is to kind of bring everyone together to your point of, you know, you set what CP3 Foundation is going to do. The issues that you focus on are things that are dear to Chris Paul's heart. Now, all of a sudden, you're coming together. And I think of it to some degree, and Bobby, I want to bring you in here, too. But I think of it a little bit around the giving pledge, where all these billionaires sat there and said, we all have our own foundations. But Bill Gates sort of said, well, if you kind of put us all together, we can actually start to try and eradicate polio across the world. And Warren Buffett sat there and said, yeah, I can have my own issue, but I want to put my billions in with the Gates Foundation so we actually can go really make a difference on some healthcare issues that are confronting the world. How's it been sort of combining forces, if you will? And do you think we'll look back on this and see this moment in time as sort of a seminal moment where all these disparate efforts come together to really try and create social and racial change? Can I say one thing before you talk, Bobby? And just to talk about you for a quick second, Bobby, it's hard to talk about you with you right here listening, but I, I will say this. Just like most professional athletes, when I came into the league, I started a foundation. You know, I was refurbishing basketball courts. We've done a lot of amazing work, right? We went into inner cities and went into boys and girls clubs and put computer labs and repainted and did different things like that. But I'll never forget a conversation that I had with Bobby, and he was like, that is amazing work, you know, but... In order to make sustainable change, you know, it costs real dollars, right? So you can't just go into certain locations and basically just put Band-Aids on real issues. And so that was one of the biggest things that I learned. And that has a lot to do with my partnership with Bobby. And what I've been able to learn is that you really have to get in there and, and make change. Like with, with the housing developments, you can't just go in there and say, hey, we think about this, we think about that. No, people want to know that you're really putting in the work. Bobby, you want to jump in? Uh, I would first of all like to say that I actually have a pretty decent jump shot. <laughs> Some people would call it a layup, but I'd call that a jump shot for a guy below six feet. Listen, we, we have an incredible opportunity. The, 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 you know, even before COVID, the social commentary in this country was pretty abysmal with regards to the, the disparity of opportunities. And while the country likes to talk about the, the, and be divisive in the sense that the biggest challenge we're facing is the disparity of wealth, 
Chris and I both agree that that's not the problem. Poor people do not hate rich people. Poor people want to become rich people. What poor people hate is when rich people create a society of oppression, which forecloses poor people out from a clear path to upward mobility. So we have two incredible forces that have collided. We have a, a civil rights movement that was catalyzed by a series, you know, decades long of injustices. But George Floyd's murder that corresponded at the same time as a global pandemic allowed this country to sit back and to really assess where we are and what our moral fabric looks like. So we have an incredible opportunity. COVID, when you add to the equation COVID, it's going to further exacerbate the disparity of opportunities. We do know that this pandemic is going to highlight just how fragile our most vulnerable populations are to economic, political, and unforeseen emergencies. And as I said before, the fact is that there are just tens and tens of millions of families whose economic, educational, and healthcare outcomes are predetermined by where they're born. These are families living paycheck to paycheck in survival mode, and it's just not sustainable. And as we all agree, I think, is while we've historically looked to the government to provide a basic social safety net that affords lower income communities a clear path to prosperity, I think we can agree that the government has failed to address key issues like education, housing, and affordable health care. And I think we can all come together as a community and recognize that, you know, upward mobility is a three-legged stool. Unless we infuse hope into communities, give them a clear path of prosperity through education, housing, and health care, that three-legged stool will fall over. So while Chris and, and Carmelo and, and Dwayne Wade and, and Willie, you and myself all have different philanthropic endeavors, I think we can all collaborate together and recognize that three critical issues are essential for us to write this listing ship of social justice in this country, education, housing, and healthcare, and recognizing the interdependency between the three. Chris, you, you mentioned coaching, and you talked about, you know, you can do it yourself or you can come together as a team and, and, and go through it. And my friend and uh, Walker Knopp, board member and founder of Management Leadership for Tomorrow, John Rice, has used the analogy of a career in basketball versus a career outside where in the United States, if you are a young, talented basketball player, you are going to get access to the very best coaching, the very best mentoring, the very best facilities to guide you through that development path. And from having gone to West Forsyth High School uh, in North Carolina to going to Wake Forest to then getting to the NBA, you clearly lived that path of getting the very, very best coaching and training that you could get. And it didn't matter the color of your skin. But if you go outside of the basketball world in the United States, that's not the case. And in many instances, it actually works against you. How can we take, if you will, the basketball model and apply it to other parts of our economy and our society? Well, first and foremost, you got to try to level the playing field. Right. So even though I went to Westside High School, I was just like a lot of other kids into a to a certain degree. You know, I actually grew up in a two parent family household. A lot of kids aren't fortunate to have that. So I was fortunate to have a dad who was my coach a lot of my childhood growing up. But it's one of those things when I talk about level leveling the playing field. Uh, I went to public schools all growing up and. I'll tell you a quick story about my own kids. Uh, I'm a parent of two. I have a daughter who will be eight, actually, in four days. And my daughter, yeah, she'll be eight, and my son is 11. All right, so I'll, I'll miss the birthday because I'm in the bubble, but I love him to death. 
But when my kids were starting school, I never forget me and my wife were taking a tour of a school and I was walking around the school and I was mesmerized. Like we walked in and they were like, this is our smart board. This is the library just for the lower school. And I seen all these iPads and these uh, Macs in the classroom and I was blown away. I was like, this is for kindergarten, <laughs> right? And I, I was blown away and I remember walking around and I tapped my wife and I was like, this is blowing my mind. I was like, yes, I feel blessed and fortunate that our children will get this. But what about the kids on the other side of town? Why aren't they getting this same type of environment? So that day, I'll never forget me and my wife, we started putting learning labs and learning centers in underserved communities. Because how are we expecting these kids to get these and get these different opportunities if they're starting so far behind, right? So when you say that as far as coaching, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, and I'm, I'm working to try to figure it out. But that's one of the biggest things that I think we're working on is trying to make sure we level the playing field. And that's, that's part of why I do so much work with HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. I went to Wake Forest University, unbelievably grateful for it, had an amazing time there, and I'm not where I am without going to that school. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more educated on – the schools that my in-laws went to, everyone in my family went to HBCUs except for me, except for me, right? So that's why I'm so passionate about it. I just had a conversation with my mom and my dad this morning and didn't know until today that my mom was supposed to go to North Carolina Central University, but somehow she fell in love with my dad, right? My dad went to Winston-Salem State for two semesters and dropped out of school, you know, so it's history, it's history, and the more I feel like me, the more I learn about it, the more I think I can help the next generation going forward and making sure my kids understand how important it is. A couple of weeks ago, Chris, I, I had on Dr. Wayne Frederick, who's the president of Howard University on the webcast. And yes. one of the things that I talked to him about during the webcast was that, as you probably know, McCore Maker, who is a top 20 yes. high school basketball player, is actually going to Howard next year. And obviously the basketball season is TBD, so we may not see McCord play in his freshman season. Let's hope we can get a basketball season in the back half of the year for the NCAA. But my comment to him was how amazing that a high schooler has taken the leadership and initiative to try and put HBCU basketball programs on the map as it relates to top basketball programs. Because if you think about the money in top basketball and top football at the collegiate level, if you and other star athletes could endow and help get players like McCore Maker to go to those schools, you could fundamentally change the competitiveness of those schools, get them onto CBS Sports on Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon, and change the overall economic outlook for HBCUs in a very short period of time. And it's just interesting that here, first of all, your support of them is fantastic. But then second, here's this high schooler who sort of took a big leap of faith, turned down Kentucky and UCLA to go to Howard. And I'm hopeful that he's sort of the tipping edge of a real movement to be able to, if you will, keep those economics at those schools or create those economics at those schools. Willie, I'm telling you, everything happens for a reason. You know, everything happens for a reason. So everyone is, they're a lot more aware now of everything that's going on. You know, companies are being evaluated to see if there's diversity there. Everything is really being highlighted. So when you talk about that, when it comes to sports, 
even just to tell you a quick story, I know your Harvard, oh Bobby, there's Wharton, you know what I mean? All that good stuff. I was so blessed and fortunate to go to an unbelievable class at Harvard Business School with Anita Elbers as the teacher, right? And I went to this class and it was a class on sports, business, and uh, education. And it was amazing. And I was there and for me, I did the research and I was like, why aren't classes like these offered at HBCUs? So along with Anita, last summer, we started that course at North Carolina A&T, the historically black college. And so when you talk about McCor or whatnot and his leap of faith and a kid named Mikey Williams, who I talk to on a regular, who's thinking about maybe doing the same thing, a lot of this stuff comes down to finance. So a lot of these schools aren't properly financed, and that's why you have to do the research and the education. There's 107 historically black colleges out there. 107. A lot of them aren't financed properly. So a lot of these kids, especially when I was growing up, you didn't feel like you could go to a historically black college because you wouldn't have been seen. But now with the world of social media or whatever it may be, if you're good, they will come. They will come. These networks will show up at those schools. And these kids need to know that going to a historically black college does not make you any less than anyone because that is somewhat of the perception. So we have to change that. And I want to be a part of that change because it's time. It's time. And speaking of Howard, I'm sorry, Willie, last one thing. Speaking of Howard, this is Kamala Harris, who is now, you know, vice president runner with, uh, with Biden. She went to Howard and I just think that is so special. And I think a lot of times people is like, oh, he's saying that because she's black. No, it's actually the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment. So how special is it that this is all culminating at the same time? So I'm sorry I had to say something about that. No, look, and I want to turn to Bobby on education. But one thing that I would say to you, Chris, is, you know, you were one of the 100 black leaders, black male leaders, who wrote a letter to Vice President Biden saying, you know, not just a woman, but an African-American woman. And I just want to say congratulations because your letter clearly had some impact. And um, if you will, you got your wish. You, you're, you're pointing out that she is a grad of Howard University. When I introduced Dr. Frederick and was talking about all of the incredible graduates who come out of Howard University, Kamala Harris, Senator Harris was on my list of, of, of noteworthy uh, Howard graduates. Bobby, let me turn to you for a second on education, because Chris talked about the disparity between, if you will, the public elementary school where Chris went to school and the school where he now has his kids. You've partnered with Andre Agassi and gone out and built 117 charter schools across the country that are today providing education for 60,000 kids. Talk for a moment about, I mean, first of all, it's just that it's so noteworthy and laudatory what you and Andre have done as far as taking your model and playing it out across the country. Hey, just a moment on why education, why partnering with Andre. But then the other issue that I had for you on a more technical basis is why haven't you partnered with one operator of these charter schools like KIT? Because if you look at your portfolio of schools, you have distinct operators. I know you have a number with KIT, but you also have a ton of other operators. Why haven't you sole sourced on one operator rather than going and finding the best in class market by market? But go to the broader question first, if you would. Well, I, I think, again, if we go back to what's essential to provide a clear path to prosperity to communities of color and immigrants, uh, education is the foundation of everybody's opportunity. And the fact is, is that the American public education system has failed 
underserved and neglected communities for decades. Again, when we look at cities like Baltimore or even Los Angeles, when only one in three public school students are proficient at grade level, that is a failing grade. Andre and I came together a, a, a about a decade ago to try to instill some degree of competition into the traditional monopoly of public education, and those were charter schools. And why charter schools aren't the, the panacea to public education, they're part of the solution, creating a portfolio approach uh, to providing quality education, particularly in the underserved, more neglected communities. As you did mention, uh, we built 117 schools over the last seven years, serving 60,000 uh, at-risk kids. The vast majority uh, are minority and qualify for free and or reduced lunch under the uh, Department of Agricultural's free and reduced lunch program. It is critical that we provide children the opportunity to thrive, uh, and it's, it's criminal uh, when we deprive them of that. We have basically selected a, a group of high-performing, best-in-class charter schools and empowered them the opportunity to scale. Uh, again, I go back to being a visual human being. These are the kinds of schools that we've been able to build over the last number of years across the country. This one happens to be a KIPP school in San Antonio. These are the kinds of children uh, whose lives you get to change on a daily basis. What I like to say is that this is what an 8.5% return looks like on your money. But this is priceless, the number of children's lives that you can change with education. And that's better than any all-star game, whatever. I don't care what it is. That right there, that's, that's powerful. So again, you know, these, the, Willie, the reason that we haven't just partnered with KIPP and we've selected a number, uh, you know, each school has its own particular mission, its own particular criteria and curriculum and own particular way of advancing education for kids. Uh, so we want to have, like any smart investor, a diverse portfolio of high-performing charter schools. The business model is obviously we need to make money while changing things at the same time. Our business model is we are a bridge to ownership for these great charter school operators. We build incredible environmentally and learning-friendly schools for best-in-class operators. We enter into actually long-term triple net leases. As Chris and I as have always talked about, our job is not to speculate. That's not what impact investing does, is we find opportunities where the existing demand is unmet. We know that there's a million kids on a wait list for a charter school today in this country. At $17,000 a school seat, it's a 20 plus billion dollar investment opportunity for us to go out and make money and at the same time make meaningful, scalable and sustainable change for these children. What we do is we build the schools, we enter into long-term leases, but once that school has four or five years of both academic and financial performance, what we do is we empower and enable that operator to purchase the facility from us. So we've got this built-in exit strategy, but more importantly, we're empowering that school to get away from paying rent and get towards maybe paying a mortgage, maybe a mortgage that we've sourced at uh, Walker and Dunlop. So that rather than that paying that rent, uh, they're building enterprise value with amortization of their debt over the subsequent 20 or 30 years. So Bobby, I want to just, you, you mentioned scale a number of times. So uh, probably about, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, maybe it's a little less, I was in Washington, D.C. at a, an event to celebrate two gentlemen, two Princeton grads who started a charter school in Washington called the Seed School. And we were raising a glass to them for all the success that Seed has had. And I want to say that at that time, Seed had had 5,000 kids run through Seed. And you sat there and you saw the pictures that Chris just talked about of huge 
you know, accomplishment and feeling like these kids are going to have a shot. And then Arnie Duncan, who at the time was the Secretary of Education, basketball player as well, as you know, Chris, Arnie, real well. um, stood up and said, yeah, you know, when I was, uh, it's great to see what Seed's done. And when I was running the school system in Chicago, which has 350,000 kids in it, and then he went on and on. And I sat there and I stopped and I said, hold on a second. Seed over a decade has touched with three to 5,000 kids, and the public school system in Chicago has 350,000 kids in it. How do you scale this model to have an impact on the Chicago school system? What do you, I mean, 117, as I said at the beginning, is a huge accomplishment, but how do you scale this model? A lot of it has to do with politics. There is the perception that charter schools are, are a challenge and or the enemy of the public school districts. Uh, but the reality is, is charter schools are public schools. They just operate independently from the school districts and the school unions. So part of it is just having a conversation that we've got to all agree. Uh, and again, I will not say that charter schools are, are the solution. They're part of the solution. The reality is the vast majority of charter schools do not outperform the public school districts. But what we all need to do in public education is recognize the conversation has got to be about children and not about adults. So for us, I mean, when we talk about what Chris is going to do with his new fund, is we have got to fund advocacy programs to make sure that politicians, that everyone involved in, in providing a clear path to prosperity for children, make sure that the conversation and the dialogue is always about children first and adults second. We've got about 10 minutes left, and I, and I, uh, I know there are a lot of people who are listening today who want to get a sense of what it's like in the bubble. And so, Chris, just a couple things, and I want to keep this very interactive, Bobby. So as I turn to Chris and sort of basketball for a moment, please feel free to jump in because the broader issues that we're talking about are so incredibly important. But one of the reasons I've read a bunch about the success of your team so far this season, and a lot of it people are pinning to you and the leadership that you've provided for your team. And I'm just curious, is there anything that you've been able to do in the quote-unquote bubble setting with your team that you wouldn't have been able to do if you were on a normal living travel schedule of moving around the country to kind of provide the leadership and bring your team together in a way that is quite honestly defied all odds as it relates to how well you guys would do in this restart of the season? That's a great question. We probably went to a couple. We had a team dinner last night. We had a team dinner the night before the first game. It's one of the things that you learn about being on any team, whether you work a nine-to-five job and you're always going to the office, there's something to be said about missing each other. So over the course of a season, we're around each other more than we're actually with our actual families. All right, so what happens is you see each other, like we'll have a game on a Monday, practice on Tuesday, game on Wednesday, practice on Thursday, then we may have a day off on Friday. So usually during the course of a regular season, that Friday, you may not see any of your teammates. So when you come in on Saturday, you're like, hey, man, what'd you do yesterday? Like, I missed you. I miss, You know, in this bubble, it's a little different because you see everybody every day, <laughs> right? So we've all sort of had our good days. You have your bad days, but you, you understand because even on an off day, like we had an off day yesterday, but we all still got to go to the meal room. We all still got to get tested. So, you know, you're still seeing each other. I think the biggest thing is, even aside from my team, because I am the president of the union, of the Players Association, what has been one of the nicest things is there have been a couple times when I had a chance to get a lot of guys together. So usually during the course of a season, you just pass guys. 
hey, what's up? Good luck. See you all on the next trip. All right. But I've got an opportunity to get to know a few guys that I never would have had an opportunity to get to know. So there's been real discussions about what our league looks like going forward. Everything that you guys see, whether it be the anthem, whatever it is, it's always a conversation. So trying to continue to get guys together, I was very blessed and fortunate to do a call a couple weeks with uh, Michelle Obama. She got on a call and talked to our players along with the WNBA women just about voting and the importance of voting. We had an opportunity to talk to Tamika Mallory and Breonna Taylor's mom, right? So everything down here is about how can we play this game that we love but also keep the social injustice issues on everyone's mind. And I know it's funny because I, I get to talking about our Turner Impact Fund, right? And I see how guys get so engaged. And that was a huge reason why I wanted to be a part of it too, because I was fortunate enough to meet Bobby and to find out all of this information. So I want to share that information with other guys. And so if we do a housing fund in a particular location, and I know one of my friends or a guy that I played against or played with is from that area. It's like, hey, look, come be a part of this. You know, because everybody, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are or where you go. Home is always going to be home. So any way that you can find a way to impact people that, that helped you, who nurtured you, you always want to be a part of it. So on that, you, you must clearly be missing home and missing your family, but probably not missing the travel. Bobby and I talked about this previously, where the two of us spend so much time traveling around the country, and COVID has made it so that we, you know, we honestly have been given a, a huge amount of more time just because we're not going to and from an airport, getting on a plane, what have you. For you, this must be, I mean, the NBA schedule is grueling as it is, and then the amount of travel and time on buses and time on planes and all that stuff, this must give you the opportunity to really focus on some of these issues in a way that you never, ever would be able to if it was a normal season. It does. It does. And this is my 15th year in the NBA, right? So 15, 15 years. And it feel like it was a couple of years ago that, you know, myself, Adam Silver, and all these different people were trying to figure out what it was going to look like for us to play. And playing basketball is part of me. Like, I'm unbelievably competitive. I don't care what it is. It can be tic-tac-toe. It can be checkers, monopoly, connect for what well, I'm extremely competitive. So every time I play, I want to win. Right. So I'm happy to be here, able to express myself in a way that I can playing basketball. But my family, my kids, my wife, this is the longest I've ever been away from my kids. Right. And anyone on here that has kids at some point in time, FaceTime it enough. They don't want to talk to you. I call when I wake up in the morning. I want to talk. My daughter give me the driest hey you could ever hear in your life, right? And I seriously, I miss them. You know, as much as I love to play this game, there's nothing like that. Like I said, I'm so privileged to be able to take care of my family and take, so many, take care of so many other people. But I know I'm not me without the love of my parents. And at the end of the day, your kids know you. They know you. So my daughter's birthday is coming up, like I said, on the 16th. And she knows that daddy just sends a gift that somebody else could have did it or whatnot. So for me, it's all about how I can make it as special as possible because that wasn't my normal growing up. I'm sorry I'm ranting, but I'm just no, 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 no. I, so, I miss my kids. <laughs> I, would only, I, would only, no, I would only say two things. One, as someone who has been watching sports, avidly since the NBA, the NHL, and golf came back online. To everybody who is a sports fan, we are deeply indebted and thankful to you and 
your role in getting the NBA back up and going, because to those of us who are sports fans, it's just wonderful to have you all on television. At the same time, we do understand that it comes with a real sacrifice on your part. I, I, we're, we're, we're tight on time. And one of the things I wanted to was, as I was sitting there thinking about, I was talking to a friend of mine, Chris, the other day, and he said, you know, this fall, we're going to be watching uh, a lot of, a lot of hockey, a lot of football and, and a lot of bowling. And I said, hold it, I can, I can deal with football, golf. I can do a basketball, hockey, and, and golf, but not bowling. And then as I'm doing my research on you, I find out that you actually own a professional bowling franchise. Like, are the numbers off the charts for you as far as bowling? I mean, is bowling going back? they got to be coming to you and saying, hey, Chris has got the playbook on how we get the professional bowlers to her back going. I don't even know if Bobby knew I owned a professional bowling team, but it goes back to, like, what's in your DNA? Like, growing up in Winston-Salem, uh, North Carolina, my dad was in a bowling league. So I would be in the bowling alley on Thursday nights with cigarette smoke. It's crazy eating hamburgers and, and hot dogs, watching my dad. And senior year in high school, my dad, my parents got me and my brother both bowling balls. So it's one of those sports, just like golf, you can do till you're 70, 75 years old. So I'm an I'm a avid bowler and an avid golfer. So, Bobby, you think you can take down Chris in the bowling alley, or do you think, he, do you think he's going to take you there, too? Well, I was a black belt with the duck pins. Growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, we had the little pins and little balls. But I will tell you that one of the great things about Chris is why we come from such diverse backgrounds. Uh, if nothing else, I think that we both share the recognition of just how large a role that luck has played in both our lives. Um, and that, that recognition of the luck that we've been blessed with, the drives, the responsibility to pay the good luck forward. And that's why Chris has been such a great friend and great partner throughout all of this over the last number of years. Well, the only way that I get two people like you onto the Walker webcast is due to friendship. And so I am deeply indebted to both of you for taking an hour out of your day to share your thoughts as it relates to impact investing, racial justice, and everything that both of you are doing to try and change this world. So I just want to say I'm thank you, thank you, thank you to both of you. Chris, good luck against the heat later on today. Bobby, I look forward to seeing you soon, and thank you very much for all you're doing. Thank you, guys. This was nice, live and direct from the bubble. <laughs> now it's nap time. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Take care, Bobby. Thank, thank you, Chris. You. Thank you. Thank you.